Uh, and at this time, I'm going to introduce David Lane, uh, who's going to speak with us this morning. Uh, David is our district superintendent. For those of you that don't know, we're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, and our district that we're a part of is the eastern half of Ohio and all of West Virginia. And so kind of in a way, David's like my boss. <laughs> so if you guys could be cool. Um, I've told him like tons of amens, you'll laugh at his jokes and all of that. Uh, so if you guys could make me look good uh, by making him look good, that would be super helpful this morning. Uh, David, coming up, I'd love to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful uh, that my brother is here and I'm excited for the word that uh, you are going to give through him. And so I just pray, uh, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning, that you would increase and David would decrease and that your people would meet with you through the message you've given him. So just come and speak, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Bryce. Oh my goodness, church family. It is such a privilege to be among you. The sense of family that came through in the service thus far, the, the transparency, the care, the love, like I live four hours away, but I'm half tempted to commute every Sunday. And I first met Bryce in 2012, and knowing Bryce and Kim and the Payne family, it does not surprise me that I've come to a church that is authentic and relational and delightful. So what a privilege to be among you and, and to open God's word. Uh, and I, I kind of want to get as close as I can down to you. So um, since I'm Bryce's boss, I'm just going to rearrange the furniture <laughs> any way I want. Um, so uh, I've got good news for you. Sounds like some of you are ready for some good news. Are you ready for some good news? So, uh, first of all, uh, don't tune in to the headlines if you want good news. Don't log into your social media if you want good news. But <laughs> I surely invite you to open this book because it has something to say that will be fuel for your spirit. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and... Um, Preachers can really mess up, man. Like, preachers can take something and in an attempt to explain it, make it way more confusing. And there was a time when the body of Christ was really confused theologically about salvation and how salvation happens. And God raised up someone to really kind of bring some clarity to that. And I think if we were to look at an area that needs some clarity, it's what we mean by the church. In fact, uh, this preacher who I really appreciate, his name's Harry Reeder. He was pastor of a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, Harry is a brilliant guy. But like I said, sometimes preachers can make things more confusing. And so Harry was out on the street, and uh, he was going about his business running an errand, and someone there in Birmingham, kind of the Bible belt buckle, uh, walked up to him and had no idea who he was, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? And uh, Harry kind of looked at the guy, and in a classic confusing preacher way, he said, well, I was saved. 
And the guy looks back at him. And Harry says, and I am being saved. Now the guy's really confused. He says, and one day I will be saved. And the guy started thinking about it, and then he kind of cocks his head. He goes, are you a preacher? <laughs> and you know, right? Like, at justification in our past, our spirit is made alive, and we are declared innocent before the Lord. At sanctification, our soul is conforming to the image of Christ. And so our spirit has been made alive. Our soul is changing and we're growing in holiness. And one day, our body will be glorified. We've escaped the penalty of sin. We are escaping the power of sin. And who's ready for that day when we get to escape the very presence of sin? Right? So now the guy knew he had a preacher on his hand. So he asked Harry another question, and i got to be honest with you, Harry confused the man even more. He said, yeah, I'm a preacher. And the guy said, okay, well, where's your church? And Harry said, I have no earthly idea where my church is right now. <laughs> this guy's like, boy, did I make a mistake picking this guy to witness to, right? And he says, preacher, what do you mean you have no idea where your church is? And he says, well, I imagine my church is at the grocery store. I imagine my church is on the runway at the airport. I imagine my church is in the, in the welder's shop and at Walmart. And the guy's just really confused. And Harry, with no sympathy for the man's confusion, says, oh, you don't want to know where my church is. You just want to know where we gather when we get together for worship. Is that, is that what you're asking? Well, that's at the First Presbyterian Church on such and such corner. Listen to me. I got good news for you. You did not get up this morning to come to church. You didn't wake up and get dressed and get ready to drive to your temple to hear from your priest. I got good news for you, Church at Elkins. You didn't come to church today. When you woke up, you woke up as the church. I got good news for you on the level of identity and a clarification of some broken theology that all of us step into. You didn't come to the temple today when you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror in the bathroom. You saw the temple. You didn't come to hear from some priest. I got crazy news for you. Follower of Jesus, you are priests. Exodus chapter 19. Look at verses 3 through 6 of Exodus 19. Keep in mind, uh, the context is uh, Moses delivering his people. And now God is speaking to the nation of Israel. L listen, folks, this is what we're reading here in Exodus 19 is uh, roughly 1,500 years before Jesus came in the flesh on earth as a baby. 1,500 years before, and as I pick up at verse 6, I want you to catch the sense of identity. 
Verse 6 of Exodus 19, uh, I mean, pick up at verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. So this is God speaking to Moses, directly communicating to Moses what God wants his people Israel to hear. Here's what God says about them. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the people of the earth. For all the earth is mine. Verse 6 is key. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you will speak to the sons of Israel. God is talking to them on the level of their identity. And he's making it clear he owns everything. But those who enter in a covenant relationship with him, they represent him as his priests and as his possession and as a holy nation. Now imagine the blessing, if they understood exactly what was being said, imagine the blessing, these Israelites, 1,500 years, 3,500 years ago from our day, heard about their identity. Now I want you to fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is some 60 years after Jesus comes in the flesh. And the writer of this letter is no longer Moses, but now this is Peter writing. And if you look at the beginning of this letter, he describes who he's writing to. It says he's writing to those who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And the reason they're scattered is because they're being persecuted. He's writing to people who are followers of Jesus, but because of that faith in Jesus, their lives are at risk. And so they have fled and scattered all throughout the first century world. And this letter is intended to nurture their faith and clarify their identity. And I want you to see what Peter has to say to the followers of Jesus scattered all throughout the first century because they were being killed for their faith. First Peter chapter 2, for context, I'm going to back all the way up to verse 4. And coming to him as living stones rejected by men, but choice in the precious sight of God, you also as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Next slide, please. I want you to see that the same identity that was imparted to Israel in Christ has been imparted to you. You are not of the tribe of Levi. I mean, we may have some Jewish folks in here, but I'm guessing we're kind of predominantly Gentile. I'm guessing there's no Levites in the house. I'd love to meet you if you are a Levite. And that's very impressive that your lineage is a priesthood, but I hate to disappoint you. Everyone else has an even higher priesthood than the Levitical priesthood because in Christ, you are priests. In fact, the clergy-laity divide has a lot more cultural weight to it than it has biblical weight. Because guess what? You're not hearing from a minister merely. You are ministers. The church is not a building. Though I'm very grateful for this building. We're warm. We're dry. It's, it's attractive. I got news for you. It's just a building. The theology of holy place, which God originated, has shifted to a holy people. Remember, the epicenter of God's activity in the nations was one nation, Israel. And the epicenter of God's activity in that nation was a particular city, Jerusalem. And the epicenter of God's power and activity and presence in Jerusalem was one building, the temple. And the epicenter of God's activity in that one building where sins are forgiven for a year where only one priest, and he's got to be the high priest, and he can only enter once a year to make sacrifice. The epicenter of God's activity in that building is the Holy of Holies. And the epicenter of God's activity in that room is the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood of lambs and goats would be spread to cover over the sin of a people for one year. And at Christ's crucifixion, the veil separating that room from everywhere else was torn from top to bottom. And in Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he points to that temple. I mean, whose idea was the temple, church? It was God's idea. I'm so grateful for Kim. It was God's idea. And Jesus points to the building which was his father's idea. And he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, not one stone's going to remain upon another. And I can picture the disciples going, hey, take it easy, Jesus. You're going to get us killed here. Because the theology of the old covenant is giving way to the theology of the new covenant. And it is no longer about a holy place. It is about a holy people. And the temple is no longer contained in one city among one people, servicing one ethnicity. Hear me, the temple is wherever God's children live, work, and play. Because if we're going to really clarify identities and be precise in our understanding, you are the church. You are the church. 
And pandemics can come and go. And persecution can come and go. And I got news for you. Unless all the billion who put faith in Jesus, went comatose for two and a half years. I got news for you. The church did not stop. The church did not shut down because the church isn't a program. It's not an event. It's not a building. It's a people on mission for God. That's who and what you are. Next uh, slide that uh, the gentleman put up for us. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the, the one you, you did. Yeah, back up one. Uh, Y'all were trying to figure that thing out. Didn't listen to a word I had to say. I can see you. And uh, this is the point. In Hebrew, there's a word for peace. It's shalom. And shalom is a very meaningful word. And shalom does not merely mean the absence of conflict. Listen to me. Shalom means being complete. And God brings shalom to a fractured world and a fractured people and fractured nations. See, shalom is in the bottom corner, which is a little tough to see. There's four relationships God brings shalom to. The first relationship God brings peace that is shattered to is his relationship to him. Our relationship to him. That when we experience God's shalom through our faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, we are now one with God. We now have access to the throne room of heaven. We are no longer his enemies. We are his children. But that's not where shalom stops. That's where shalom begins to flow out from you. Because as you have the shalom peace of God restoring his relationship with you, you then... Experience the shalom in your relationship to yourself. You become clear on who you are. You're not a construction worker. You're not a teacher. You're not a homemaker. You're not a West Virginian. You're not an American. Let me tell you, your identity transcends those things. Because careers change and nations rise and fall. But the church, she's eternal. She ain't going anywhere until her work is done. And there is no force on earth. There is no army in Russia. There is no threat of the Dow Jones collapse that can stop that church. That's who you are. And not only does it restore your relationship with God and bring shalom, not only does it restore your understanding of who you are and bring shalom, but he wants to bring shalom to others through you. That as God brings shalom, you, in the way you interact with other human beings, can be an agent of his peace. And, and Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all creation is groaning for that day when it will be delivered. In fact, God will one day bring shalom, not just to holy people who are in submission to him, but I got news for you. One day God's going to bring shalom to the whole kit and caboodle. And what is not in alignment with him will be utterly destroyed. That's just what's true. 
and the agent of bringing shalom. The plan and purpose of God includes the church. In fact, you are writing the history of the church in your day. Next slide. God's plan has never changed. He hasn't thought, you know what, we'll, we'll, try, we'll try these Middle Eastern folks and see if we can get some traction with them and maybe we'll build some really impressive building and we'll take the gold from the Egyptians and, and we'll line this place with gold and, you know, just in case it really goes south, we'll make sure there's a lot of oil when the combustible engine is uh, invented, you know, and maybe that'll work out. No, 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 no. He sees the whole picture from before anything is created, and you have been in his plan all along. So I believe one of the clearest explanations of the identity of the church is found in the book of Ephesians, and I'm just going to highlight a little bit of it. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about identity. It tells us who we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters are about our activity. It tells us what we ought to be doing in light of who we are. So let's tackle a little bit of this identity. If you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, picking up at verse 10, I want you to see this amazing miracle God produced in Jesus. Because there has been enmity, ethnic, religious, geographic enmity between two significant groups of people in humanity for millennia. And that divide is between the Jewish people and anyone who is not Jewish. And the word for anyone who is not Jewish is Gentile people. And what we find is in Ephesians chapter 2, God is making it clear through the pen of Paul, perfectly inspired by God's Spirit, without error and without mistake, he's making it clear that God took the division between Jew and Gentile, and he made them one in Jesus. Now, I know churches can fight over carpet and paint color and style of music, and we think that's cataclysmic. Listen, the war between Jew and Gentile was deeply seated in religious prejudice, was deeply seated in racial prejudice, was deeply seated in geographical prejudice, and Jesus was sufficient to bring reconciliation to both parties. Isn't it interesting? Church of Jesus Christ, that we represent the greatest reconciler on earth, maybe that ought to be a clue we should get along with each other. If we're ambassadors of the greatest reconciler in existence, we might need to do a sober assessment of how we are doing in a spirit of reconciliation. In fact, I'm going to ask you a trick question, so don't answer it out loud, because I'd love to be invited back. <sighs> 7,000 people, roughly, in Elkins. 30,000, 29,000 people roughly in Randolph County. How many? Don't answer it out loud. I mean, you can, but 
How many churches you think there are in Randolph County? That's a good word. I hear you, dude. He answered out loud. This is a bold man. How many churches you think there might be in Elkins? Because remember, preachers are guilty of making things a little more confusing in their effort to make things accurate. I got news for you. There's one church in Elkins. There's one church in Randolph County. There's one church in West Virginia. There's one church in the United States of America. And no, I'm not saying the Christian and Missionary Alliance because that's branding and that's ego and that's logo. Hear me. Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride. There's one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And Jesus' prayer in the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17 was that everyone who would believe the message of the gospel through the dissemination beginning with the apostles and then spreading out through every one of his followers as he puts the temple on the road, it includes you and his prayer for you here in Elkins, West Virginia, is that you would be one with the other members of the body of Christ as Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus' prayer is that that church, that one church, that one bride, would be so unified that the unity among them would paint the picture of the unity Jesus has with his Father and they together have with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the outcome of the answer to this prayer. And if I'm a gambling man and there's a prayer I want to gamble on that might get answered, I'm going to risk that Jesus' prayer just might get answered. And he gives the outcome of the answer to that prayer. Father, I pray that they would be one, as you and I are one. Then the world will know you sent me. You want to be effective in evangelistic saturation of a city with the gospel? You collaborate with gospel-driven people of God. You don't all have to be the same congregation. I didn't ask how many congregations. Good night. We couldn't have one congregation. Imagine that commute every Sunday morning and who gets to be that location, right? So we're intended in our identity to be spread out and scattered and have different flavors and different expressions and different emphases. But that's, that's a variety of expression. There's just one church and it's you. It's you. Not only does Paul show this great work of Jesus in bringing a reconciliation between the Jews and Gentiles, but he talks about a temple he's building. And the bricks in this temple are flesh. You're not only individually a temple in your body, as Paul describes to the church in Corinth, but you are a part of a massive building that God is building as a temple he dwells. And it is in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up at verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, the old covenant and the new covenant. Look very clearly, verse 20 and 21. 
Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also, you, you, are being built into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Man, I got good news for you, Elkins. Your identity transcends anything this world has to offer. And you are the instrument for God's eternal purpose. And when we come to chapter 3, you said we end at 3 o'clock, Bryce? Four. Four, yeah. When we... Hey, man, it's been 26 minutes and 41 seconds, so hang in there. When you look at Ephesians chapter 3, you see why he's building this temple and what he expects of this temple. In fact, as we move through Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about this great mystery. Mystery that's been hidden from ages past, but revealed to Paul. And consequently revealed to you because you have access to God's word because he wants to change you with his word. And I'm working hard to change the message of your identity to be in alignment with Christ's word. And here's what he says, starting in verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which is in ages past been hidden in God who created all things, verse 10, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. In order that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. You are God's plan to put his wisdom on display. You're the church. And his plan is to use you to make known, to manifest, to shine forth his wisdom. And who's the audience? Uh, hey, this will put steel in your spine. Here's the audience. In the context of Ephesians, what do we see referenced when the reference to principalities, rulers, and authorities is given? Hey, take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, because principalities, rulers, and authorities is a reference to the demonic realm. And I got good news for you. God is choosing to use you to show the powers of darkness just how mighty and wise and gracious and loving and powerful he is. You're his instrument to put to shame the ancient rebels of ancient time. That's why you're here. That's why you are on planet Earth. It's not to get the next level in Call of Duty. It's not uh, to have more hits on TikTok. It's not to make the big decisions in your company. It's not 
to hit the lottery and you can just coast in through life. Your purpose isn't to get to enjoy all the good things. Hey, God is so good. That's just gravy, the things of this world. But your ultimate purpose is to be in relationship with him and to represent him to anyone not yet in relationship with him because that will make a difference for all eternity. And I got news for you, Elkins. Those 7,000 people you share this community with, every man, woman, and child needs repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And it's not just through the dissemination of tracts. And it's not through some big crusade with some slick-tongued preacher. Hear me. It's wherever you live, work, and play. And you bump into the 7,000 neighbors, co-workers, people you play pickleball with, people you play bingo with, people you work out with at the Y. I don't know what you do. But hopefully you do all sorts of different things so that we can get access to as many of those 7,000 as possible. Because the primary ministry of Elkins Alliance Church is not what happens one day for one hour. It's what happens wherever you live, work, and play. And as you bring the very presence of Jesus, wherever you go, darkness can no longer reign there because you've brought light. And this is why you're on planet Earth church. And what a beautiful calling. What a beautiful calling. All right, that's what we call an introduction. Can we keep going with the sermon? No, I'm just kidding. We're almost done. Hang in there. What do we mean specifically when we say church? And boy, did I see a beautiful picture of it today. Next slide, please. It's, uh, uh, we're going to skip these quotes in the interest of time, but some really smart people said some really smart things. A uh, couple more. Yeah. Okay. Simple definition of church. It's a community. In fact, could we go one more slide? It's a community of people the Bible describes as a family. Man, I watched, I watched family happen. And I'm glad I can wear flip-flops in uh, March in, uh, in West Virginia. Hallelujah. I'm going to remember that, right? And what happened over here? And, hey, how many now know French is apparently really, 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 really hard, right? Okay? And, and to see what God's doing around the world, and we belong to those people, and they belong to us, and, and to see someone be transparent in their pain and their suffering and a group of people circle around and people lift their hands in solidarity and to belong to a group like that. Listen, the Bible calls it a family and you might have biological family, but because you've been rescued by the blood of Jesus, you've got a family that transcends that biological family. And not is it only a family, but it's a family following Jesus. It's disciples. There's aim and direction to this family. Discipleship is plan A. There is no plan B. It's growing in the character and competencies of Jesus more and more every day. It's not only being how Jesus was, but it's doing what Jesus did. And this is a progression that takes time. And we need to equip one another in this progression. And that is how we reflect God to the world. 
And it's not merely classes we go through to increase cognition, but it's people who invest in us and we imitate them as they show their life to us. I was a lost kid in a suburb of Detroit. I had no idea who Jesus was other than a cuss word. I'd never been in a building we foolishly call a church because it's just a building. And I'd never even been to a funeral in a church or a wedding in a church. I'm as unchurched as they would get. And I remember visiting family in Kentucky who were very churched. And one of my cousins who I just met asked if I was a Christian. I said, I have no idea. I've never even heard that word. I don't know what that is. And she wouldn't talk to me the whole rest of the trip. And I thought, looking back, they need to work on her evangelistic skills. (laughs) But in fourth grade, a family of God following Jesus decided to be on mission for Jesus and brought the gospel to my elementary school. And I heard about who God is and what he did for me, and I gave my life to Jesus. And then I found out there's a building they meet in, like all the time. And they do really cool things on Wednesday night. Like we went to this place called Cedar Point. We had pizza parties. Let me be really transparent. There were cute girls there. (laughs) But I met a guy named Bill Mong, worked in a machine shop. His wife's name was Gloria. They worked with the youth group. He wasn't a youth pastor. He wasn't paid. He invited us into our home. We did Bible study there. I watched this man. I learned how to be a husband. I learned how to be a dad. I wanted to be around him every moment I could. They were discipling me. It didn't have a label of discipleship. It was what Jesus was doing. In fact, I was so drawn to these people. I remember one night Bill and Gloria said, well, Dave, you know, by this time I'm 16, I got a driver's license. They said, well, Dave, like we're going to bed. So, uh, you know, turn off the light. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got I to go home. Oh, what are you guys doing tomorrow? And then I found out they don't only meet on Wednesday night. They, one of them said, hey, we get together on Sundays too. I'm like, will you be there? Yeah, okay, I'm there. And then I found out as special as Bill and Gloria were, there was a whole room full of Bill and Gloria's because it was Jesus that I was drawn to at Bill and Gloria. And now this little fourth grader who had no idea who Jesus was beyond a cuss word is your pastor's boss. <laughs> Are you following? That's discipleship. I'm not really his boss. That's just a joke we make. It's it's a people following Jesus, being so contagious that other people who bump into them start following Jesus. And that's the mission. And that's who you are. And that's what he's called you to do in this county. And that's what he's called every other gospel-driven congregation to do in this county. And if you were to just track where each of you live, work, and play. Each of you. Maybe some are retired. Maybe some uh, work is going to school. And you were to put a pin representing where every one of you live, work, and play. That is a point of gospel access for this community. That person in the cubicle next to you that takes all the credit for the work that you do, listen. That neighbor whose dog poops in your yard every time they walk by. Listen, they're your mission field. That coach or teacher, God wants to use you to have a meaningful conversation with that person about the hope that you have. And not just one time, but repeated opportunity. To see how you suffer. 
To see how you endure prosperity. To see how you behave when you're wronged. You can't do that one hour a week in a room where most of us sit and one guy talks for approximately 37 minutes and 34 seconds. So Bryce, I thank you for the opportunity to come here to Elkins. I thank you for the opportunity to be exposed to a family. May there be growing and greater clarity on who we are and what we do. And I'm, I'm going to leave you with, uh, if we could skip that video and, and just go uh, a couple more slides down. Yes, yeah, stop right there. Gospel saturation. This is the invitation I want to bring every church that I have access and influence with. That the church would own the lostness of an identified people in a defined place and ensure that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And I'm going to close with this. It's just a quick walk through Acts. You don't have to turn there if you're going to trust that I'm giving it accurately to you. In Acts 8.1, I mean in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's talking to a specific people in a specific generation about real specific geography that echoes out in concentric circles. First Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then ends of the earth. Now from the orientation of Jerusalem. Would Elkins, West Virginia qualify as part of the ends of the earth? I'd say yes. I'm glad the gospel came here. I hope you are. But here's the problem with the church. Oh, how we love to gather and only gather. And as Jesus called his church, there's no temple, there's no church building. As Jesus called his church to be his witnesses throughout all of these geographies, for eight years, they never left Jerusalem until you get to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you remember what happened? They got some blood on the walls. Stephen was martyred for his faith. It was the instrument of persecution that activated the church in her mission. Because one of Stephen's peers, a deacon named Philip, it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, went through Samaria. And as he went to Samaria, he preached the gospel. In fact, by the time you get farther into chapter 8, Philip, who's not clergy, he's just a dude who loves Jesus and waited on tables. He's talking to an Ethiopian eunuch and he gives him the truth of the gospel which is now going to go to Africa. Are you hearing me? It took eight years for the church to get activated. It's not just coming together once a day for once an hour. What happens in that hour better be special but it most specially better fuel you and equip you for what you're going to do the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Because that's where the church is. And then we got Acts chapter 13, where Barnabas and Saul come on the scene. No longer is the church centered in Jerusalem. Now the new emphasis is Antioch, which is in Syria. That's a long way from Jerusalem. And they've got an established body of believers. And they're actually having a worship service. And it says that as they minister to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And I can imagine, quote, the pastor at the church at Antioch saying, well, Barnabas is a part of our small group uh, organization. And he, you know, he's on the assimilation team. And Saul, he's our best communicator. And he's in our series. He's part of the preaching rotation. So, you know, like, 
Can't we just keep doing our own thing here in Antioch and forget about the rest of the world? Aren't you glad they sent Barnabas and Saul, who would later become Paul? Because then the emphasis is no longer Jerusalem in the, in the narrative acts. It's no longer Antioch in Syria. It moves all the way to Turkey and the church at Ephesus. And if you look at Acts 19, verse 10, go ahead and turn there if you've got access to a Bible, because you might not believe me unless you read it. Acts 19.10 is in reference to a discipleship, gospel saturation effort that Paul initiated 25 years after Acts 1.8. This is a process of 25 years. What happens 25 years later, multiple countries away? Acts 19.10 says, in the province of Asia, let me just give you a little historic context. The province of Asia in the first century at the writing of Acts Chapter 19 was 5 million people. Don't think Asia like a continent. Uh, Modern-day Turkey was divided in provinces. One of those provinces where the city of Ephesus was located, it's called the province of Asia, 5 million people. And what Acts 19.10 says is every Jew and Gentile in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You had gospel saturation of a real specific geography. You know what they didn't have? They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have the combustible engine. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have tracks. How in the world did they do it? The same way Jesus is calling you to reach Elkins and Randolph County. And boy, if you get those 30,000 with multiple access, there's 1.8 million West Virginians. So don't get comfortable. You got some work to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for the 7,000 people in Elkins who need a repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And Lord Jesus, will you continue to use this people, your church, to accomplish your eternal purpose? And Heavenly Father, I pray for the 30,000 in Randolph County, and I'm asking that you would raise up a collaboration among churches in this county to take responsibility for the 30,000 West Virginians who have desperate need of access to you. And Father, where each one of these folks tomorrow morning scatters throughout this community, may light rain and may darkness be pushed back. In Jesus' name, amen.